our Lord and our God. We thank you and we praise you. Lord, that we were once slaves to sin. But Lord, we have now been made slaves of Christ. Lord, we all know that sin is a cruel taskmaster. But Lord, you are a gracious and loving master. Lord, we pray that as we consider this passage this morning, help us, Lord, to see that, that in whatever context your providence has led us into, Lord, that, that ultimately we are your slaves. Lord, help us to seek to obey you out of grateful and loving hearts. Lord, we pray that you would work in us through the power of your Spirit. Lord, to accomplish these things for the glory of your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Onesimus was a runaway slave. He had stolen money from his master and fled to Rome. Now, if Onesimus had been caught, he could have been, been flogged and chained, imprisoned, branded, and even crucified. But in God's providence, he encountered the Apostle Paul and came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul encountered Onesimus, this runaway slave, what would you expect him to do? Well, in, in our culture, where where slavery is, is almost unanimously denounced and rejected, we would expect, perhaps, the Apostle Paul to say, well, Onesimus, slavery is a wicked institution. No man should enslave another. You're free with my blessing. But Paul doesn't say that to Onesimus, does he? In fact, he does pretty much the opposite of what we would think he would do from our modern sensibilities. He sends Onesimus back to his master. You see, in another act of God's providence, Paul knew Onesimus' master. Paul was friends with Onesimus' master. And you might be thinking, well, if you're not familiar with this passage of Scripture, you're thinking, hang on a second. The Apostle Paul was friends with a slave owner? But it gets worse. You see, Paul's friend, Onesimus' master, was, was also a Christian. In fact, a church actually met in, in, in his house. Of course, we're talking about Philemon, to whom this, this epistle was written, the shortest epistle that, that Paul has written. In fact, it's, it's the last written, the last epistle that we have, in, in, at least in, in order, in the Bible. It's sandwiched there between, between Titus and Hebrews. Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon, but he doesn't send him back empty-handed. He sends him back with a letter. And this letter is this letter, which is the epistle to Philemon. And this letter begins surprisingly with an expression of Paul's love, of his thanksgiving, and his praise for Philemon. Remember, he's a slave owner. Well, how does that jive with, with your presuppositions? Paul doesn't deal with slavery maybe in the way that we would expect him to. Now, he does deal with slavery. 
But he does it, does it in that letter, at least implicitly. Where he tells Philemon that he could command him to do the right thing, but that out of love for Philemon, that, that he wants to instead encourage him to do the right thing, to appeal to him for love's sake. And so from Paul's perspective, what is the right thing to do? It's for Philemon to welcome Onesimus back, but not to welcome him back as a slave, but as more than a slave. To welcome him back as a brother. He tells Philemon to put any of Onesimus' debt, probably for the money that, that was stolen, onto Paul's account. And Onesimus knows, or Philemon rather, knows that he could never pay back Paul for all that Paul has done for him in Christ. And then Paul puts even more weight on it by telling Philemon to prepare a room for his visit, that Paul is planning to come to see him. So here we have the Apostle Paul dealing with slavery, but, but not by dealing with it in, in terms of the, the widespread institution in the culture, but by dealing with it in the hearts of individual Christians. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here in Ephesians 6, 5-9. This is, this is a controversial passage. It's one that we're going to look at this morning. It's a controversial passage because Paul does not outright condemn Slavery. Instead, again, he speaks to individual slaves and masters. Harold Honor explains that Christianity's emphasis has always been on the transformation of individuals who transform society, not the transformation of society which will transform individuals. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's seeking to, to preach the word of God to people so that their hearts and their lives will be transformed and then as more and more individuals are transformed that the society would in turn be transformed. Now when we think of slavery, we, we tend to think of, of African men and women in chains in the American South. People don't realize how common slavery was in the ancient Near East as well. In fact, whether it was in America or there in ancient Rome, that, that fully one-third of the population were slaves. One-third, one in three people, was a slave. And that was true, again, in the American South just prior to the Civil War. But the slavery that took place in Paul's day was substantially different from that that took place in the American South. First of all, slavery in the ancient Near East in Rome was not on the basis of race. As we said to the kids, there, was, there were people from, from all, all kinds of, of nations and, and cultures were enslaved. While the slaves that, that, that came to the United States were mainly American, people who were made slaves in, in Rome, in the Roman Empire, were, Egypt, were from Egypt and Asia Minor and Syria and Spain and Greece and Arabia and Ethiopia and Scythia and Thrace and Gaul and Britain. Secondly, the, the slaves that, that, were, that were made slaves in America were kidnapped by fraud and violence. They, men, armed men, went to Africa and, and, and in chains dragged men and women in prison ships back to Europe and then on to the United States and, and the West Indies. Well, in the, in the scriptures, we actually see that, that this express form of slavery is outright condemned. In Exodus 21, 16, we, we see that, that this sin of, of what the Bible refers to as man-stealing was punishable by the death penalty. Exodus 21, 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. 
And the Apostle Paul lists enslavers and referring there to the practice of kidnapping people into slavery, along with murderers, the sexually immoral, and homosexuals in 1 Timothy 1.10. This, this form of kidnapping people into slavery was expressly forbidden in God's word. Well, in the Roman Empire, apart from a few who were enslaved by pirates, the majority of slaves were taken as prisoners of war during the Roman military campaigns. And other sources of slaves were those who couldn't pay their debts, and people who sell, sold themselves into slavery for upward mobility. Now, to our ears, that might seem strange that, that somebody would, would become a slave for upward mobility. But what we need to understand is, is that, that many slaves were educated by their masters in the Roman Empire, and that slaves could become doctors and tutors. Others would manage household affairs or conduct, conduct business affairs. And that slaves in ancient Rome were also paid. They were paid a small amount, but, but they were to set that money aside because slaves in ancient Rome were generally released around the age of 30. And they were to take that money and then to use it to establish themselves. This is very different from what took place in, in North America. Because slaves in, in North America were, were only rarely granted freedom. Many had escaped. In fact, because slavery had been outlawed in Canada in 1793, many fled to Canada on the Underground Railroad. In fact, by the year 1860, there were at least 20,000 slaves who had relocated in Canada. Many slaves in America were treated horrifically. The majority did not survive the trip across the ocean in those slave ships. If you've not seen the movie Amazing Grace, the story of William Wilberforce, I highly recommend it. It is an excellent, excellent movie that depicts, that depicts the, the treatment of slaves. But in ancient Rome, they, although they, slaves could be abused there as well, and, and some were, they were generally treated much better. They were treated much better than their American counterparts. But either way, these slaves were considered property. They were considered to be merely tools. They were human tools, in the words of Aristotle. And here they were in the church in Ephesus. When, when we look at this passage, remember this, is, this, is, this was a letter that would have been read to the church in Ephesus. And, and this is part of the household call that we, we've talked about from Ephesians 5.22 and it goes down to 6.9. This is the household call where Paul first dealt with, with husbands and wives and then, and then children and parents and now with slaves and owners. They were considered to be part of the same household and in many cases they would have been sitting in the same church together. Just imagine the, the stir that would have rippled through the congregation as these words hit their hearts. Some probably would have been shocked that slaves would have been even mentioned because, because they were generally ignored in that culture. Some of the slaves might have, have hoped that this letter would have been their emancipation proclamation that, that Paul would have been pronouncing them free. Some of the masters might have been horrified that, that here in this passage that they were viewed as being on equal footing with slaves. 
Because slaves in that culture were, were considered even to be a, a lower form of life. But in the command here for both servants and masters, for slaves and masters, the command is essentially the same. They're both told to obey. They're told how to obey, they're told who to obey, and they're told why to obey. This was radical. This was completely countercultural. What, what Paul's saying here is as those who were saved through the work of Christ, and who had been empowered by the Holy Spirit, who had been changed, they were to walk no longer as pagans, but they were to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. What the Apostle Paul is, is saying to, to these slaves and also to the masters here is, is God does not promise you freedom from your circumstances, but the strength to endure. God does not promise you freedom from your circumstances, but the strength to to endure. So this is the Emancipation Proclamation. Paul declares slaves free as slaves of Christ. And he declares masters free also, again, as slaves of Christ. Now thankfully none of us here are, 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 are sitting here as, as slaves to men. Now there may be times that you would think of yourself as a slave when you when you think of, 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 a, of a cruel boss. You think of him, think of him as, a, as a cruel taskmaster. But remember, you have the freedom to be able to walk off the job. Either through through lawful strike or, or, or through quitting. That is a freedom that you have that these slaves in that culture did not have. And remember, the penalty for runaway slaves could be death. Thankfully, none of us here have that hanging over our heads if we walk off our jobs. Now, that's not to say that there are not some real and personal ramifications if you choose to walk off your job for, for the right reasons. Your boss may be extremely difficult. Your work may be hard. It might not be fulfilling. It might be thankless. It might not be the kind of work that you would choose for yourself. You're not a slave. But the same commands here apply to you. Likewise, you, you, you're not sitting here this morning as, as a master, but you might be sitting here this morning as a boss of having people working for you. You might be a boss, but you're not a master. But again, the same command here applies to you. Commentator John A. Allen states that the attitude to work and the spirit demanded of masters and those under them are just as relevant in a free society as in a slave society. Paul declares workers free as slaves of Christ, and he also declares bosses free as slaves of Christ. So let's look first at slaves. Well, as free men and women, we have the freedom to be able to come and go where we please. And we can't even begin to imagine what it must have been like for slaves in the Roman Empire, or, or let alone in the Americas 200 years ago. But for
for those slaves who were sitting there when this letter was read. Just, just imagine what might have been going through their minds. Again, while those slaves were, were treated generally better than, than those in America, slaves and masters were sitting together in one church. And we would hope that these slaves would have been treated better than the slaves in the wider culture. But as we'll see, that was not always the case. But either way, they were still slaves. And Paul was telling them to obey. And the word that's translated here, obey, means essentially to follow instructions on the basis of having paid attention. It's the same command that is given to children in Ephesians 6.1, that they are to obey their parents. Essentially what it means is, is that their ears are to be inclined to the commands of their masters. Sinclair Ferguson explains that in, under Old Testament law, if, if there was a slave who was entitled to go free, as they were at the end of six years or at the year of Jubilee, but, but they loved their master and they wanted to stay in the service of their master, that they could say, I don't want to leave your service. And what would happen is that they would go and to the, they would they would put their ear up against the, the one of the, the doors of their of the house, and they would have their ear pierced through. Now, if you've not had your ear pierced, you probably would imagine it's very painful, but it's actually not very painful. Okay, but, but what that was representing was that their ear belonged to their master. Their ear belonged to their master. You can read about that in Exodus 21, 5 and 6. Are you familiar with, with HMB Records, the, the record company that just went out of business uh, there in the mall? Do you know what the symbol of HMV used to be? It was, was a little dog with his ear, or his face rather, up against a gramophone. And for those of you that don't know what a gramophone is, it's, it's a, it's a, it was a speaker. And do you know what, what HMV stands for? His master's voice. His master's voice. What, what that was saying is that, that this dog could hear his master's voice coming through the, the fidelity of, of this record and was paying attention. It, it's, it, his face was turned towards the way, what he interpreted as the voice of his master. This is to be true of servants, as of all servants, they are to have their, their face turned, their ear tuned to the voice of their master. You think about, about parents, and, and it's an uncanny ability. I think mothers and fathers, but mothers are particularly good at this. They, when there could be a bunch of babies crying in a room, but they can pick out their baby's cry. Right? There's a skill. They, they are, their ear is tuned to the voice of their child. And likewise, servants are to have their ears tuned to the voice of their masters. At work, is, is your ear tuned to the voice of your boss? Do, do you, when your boss says, says, I want you to do something, are you quick to obey? Remember we told the kids that you are to obey right away? all the way in a happy way. That's what obedience is. And, and 
when you're in the workplace, it might sound silly, but you could maybe remind yourself of that. Okay, I need to obey right away, all the way, in a happy way. Preach that to yourself. Not out loud. Okay, but, but this is something that, that, that you can remind yourself of, that this is what it means to obey. So let's look a little bit more at what the Apostle Paul means when he says that you are to obey. He says, he actually lists four ways that, that you are, that servants are, slaves are to obey their masters. First of all, with fear and trembling in verse 5. With a sincere heart also in verse 5. Not with eye pleasers, or sorry, not with eye service in verse 6. And with a good will in verse 7. Now, as we'll see, although the Apostle Paul says that, that you are that they are to obey earthly masters, at each point it is not ultimately the earthly master who is to be obeyed, but the heavenly master. At each one of those, this is a this is a how, but it's also a who. Okay, it, it, the, the Apostle Paul is telling you how to obey, but he's also saying who you have to obey. You're not ultimately obeying your earthly master, but ultimately, when you obey, you're obeying your heavenly master. Likewise, it's not your earthly boss who is to be ultimately obeyed, but your heavenly master. The word that is, that is rendered here, master, in this passage is exactly the same word as the word that is translated Lord. It's the same word. And this would not have been lost on these, on these first uh, hearers of this passage. You obey your earthly master because Jesus Christ is your Lord and Master. So first of all, he says in, in verse 5, to do so with fear and trembling. Now essentially this means with reverence and respect. This, this, pray, this phrase is, is common in the Old Testament, but it, it's also present in the New, and it speaks most often of our attitude in the face of Almighty God. It's our attitude in the face of Almighty God. For example, in Philippians 2.12, we're told to, you're told to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. So the fear and trembling of slaves is not ultimately fear and trembling to their, to their earthly master, but to the Lord. And that phrase is there at the end of verse 5, where it says, as you would Christ, also describes this fear and trembling. It's fear and trembling as to Christ. As to Christ. And the same is true in the workplace. When you are at work, you're not called to, to, to tremble before your boss. But with fear and trembling before the Lord, to obey your boss, to honor your boss, to respect your boss. He says also in verse 5, you have to do so with a sincere heart. Now this means with single purpose and motivation, with integrity. Slaves were to, be able to, were, were to be able to be trusted at all times to operate in their, to, and to serve in their master's best interest. When I think of this, I think of, of Joseph in Potiphar's house. And Joseph rose to prominence in, in Potiphar's house because of his obedience. And it, it wasn't, it was, uh, that was the case until the treachery of Potiphar's wife. As an employee, you must be trusted to be able to work in your master's best interest, your boss's best interest all the time. 
you should be able to be trusted to do whether it's the most mundane or the most important responsibilities well. Your boss should be able to say, I want you to do this, and then know that it will be done and done right. But once again, the ultimate object of your obedience, even though you are to be sincere to your boss, it is ultimately sincerity to your heavenly master. To your heavenly master with sincere heart as you would have sincerity of heart towards Christ. Now look again here, at, at, just see that, that, that you are to obey with a sincere heart as you would Christ. It is as though it is Christ himself that you are obeying. The third one is not with eye service. Paul seems here to have made up a word. Eye service. It's a really descriptive word. It really tells us what it means. It's, eye service means doing your work for people who may be watching. Paul calls this people-pleasing. Slaves are prone to do this, and so are we. Working one way when your boss is present, and another way when he's absent. You're at your computer, checking Facebook, or, or playing solitaire, and, and then quickly turning it off when somebody comes into the room. That's eye service. That's people-pleasing. Or if you do a better job when you know that people are going to see what you do. If you're doing a better job when you know that people are going to give you accolades, that's eye service, that's people-pleasing. But again, it is ultimately Christ who you are serving. Again, not by way of eye service as people-pleasers, but as bond servants, as slaves of Christ. Paul asked the question in Galatians 1.10, he said, Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were, I would no longer be the servant of Christ. Christ is your master, and you are his slave. And friends, there is nothing that he doesn't see. Let your eye service be under the eye of Christ. I wonder, as you think about that, does that encourage you, or does it concern you? Finally, he says that you are to, to obey with a good will. And it's here where the, this, this, the one you are serving, the who, is made even more explicit. Again, I cannot imagine how difficult it must have been for someone to, to submit to a master as a slave. I have, no, I have no category for that in my mind or my experience. To have a good will towards someone who owns me. But if that's true for slaves, it's true for employees as well. What do you think of your, of your boss when he tells you what to do? You're to have a good will towards him because you have a good will towards God. Paul says here in verse 8 that, sorry, verse 7 rather, that you are rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. You're to do God's will with a good will. Do you realize that when you do this, when you obey your boss in this way, that you are obeying God. Doesn't that, doesn't that drag your, your work out of the, the, the mundane, day-to-day -day realities of, of your responsibilities? 
Because you have a much higher responsibility. You have a responsibility towards, towards Christ. And when you serve God in this way, you are doing the will of God. Friends, no task, no task is menial. When you understand that you're doing it for God, whether it's mowing a lawn, whether it's serving a customer, whether it's flying a plane, whether, whether it's, it's running pipes or driving buses or studying for exams or driving nails or whatever it is that you do, when you understand that you are doing God's will, when you do it right, it encourages you and it inspires you to do it in, in a way that you would never have done it otherwise. We talked about this a, a couple months ago, but, but your work or your vocation is your calling. It's not just professionals that have a calling. All of our work is a calling. Whatever you, your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Whatever it is that God's providence leads you to do, do it with all your might. Colossians 3, verses 22 to 41 is a passage parallel to the one we're looking at here, Ephesians 6, 5 to 9. In verse 23 of Colossians 3, Paul says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not to men. As for the Lord and not to men. And then he continues the thought in verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. This really begins to take us to the why of obedience. We see this in Ephesians 6, 8, where Paul teaches essentially the same thing. He says that knowing whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or free. Do you see how he qualifies those? It's whatever good, right? Every single good that you do, the Lord will repay. And that's true of anyone. Anyone from the lowest slave to, to the highest king, the Lord will repay everyone. The Lord knows your work and he will reward you. Psalm 62, 12 says that, for you will render to a man according to his work. But there's a warning here as well. Because the same is true for disobedience. The Lord is going to repay that too. That's made more explicit in Colossians 3.25 that the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. And then that leads into 4.1 that we're going to talk about the issue of masters in a couple minutes. You need to understand that this is not works-based salvation the Apostle Paul is talking about here. Our salvation is a free gift from God. But the Bible also teaches that there are rewards for obedience. You can see that all throughout the scriptures. And that it's okay that it's good where we're actually commended to seek rewards from the hand of God, to seek that eternal reward that comes from our eternal Heavenly Father. We need to remember that all of us, even the most diligent workers amongst us, we are all unprofitable servants, Luke 17.10. We need to understand that any work, that every work that we do, every good work that we do, is really an act of God's grace. Because God has created us in Christ Jesus as His workmanship for good works. Ephesians 2.10 So what motivates you in your work? Your paycheck? 
promotions, pats on the back. Again, you need to train your mind to remember that it is all for Jesus Christ, my Lord. It's all for Jesus Christ, my Lord, and He will reward me. When no one notices your effort, it's all for Jesus Christ. He is my Lord. He will reward me. When you don't feel motivated, preach to yourself, it's all for Jesus Christ. He is my Lord. He will reward me. With the time that we have left, let's look at masters. I'm almost at the end of my time, but, but so is Paul. He concentrates his commands to masters really to just one verse. Verse 9. It says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. He puts this all in one verse. Because the command to obey is essentially the same. He says, do the same to them. Now there is one command that's specific to them. But the principles here that, that from this passage that apply to slaves also apply to masters. The how is not exactly the same, but the who and the why are the same. Masters are not commanded to obey their slaves. Right? Paul doesn't, doesn't turn that around that far. He doesn't command masters to, to, sub, to submit to their slaves, just as he does not command parents to submit to their children or to obey their children. But like fathers are not to provoke their children, masters are not to threaten their, ster their servants. Now we need to stop and realize for, for a second here that when the Apostle Paul writes something in, in one of his letters, he, he's not just doing it for, for no reason. Okay, the Apostle Paul put this in this letter because some of the masters in that congregation were threatening their slaves. That this was taking place and the Apostle Paul says, may it never be. May you not do this. Do not threaten them. And just think about some of the threats that these, these masters had in their arsenal with which to control the behavior of their slaves. Beating, whipping, branding, crucifixion. These sorts of things happened to slaves in that day. Now thankfully, you don't have those kind of, of threats over your head. And bosses, you can, you can threaten your, your employees. You can threaten them with, with docking their pay, with, with having to work extra hours, or, or with firing them. But similarly, this must not be. You're not to threaten your employees. John Newton, the former slave trader who turned pastor, wrote of the kind of abuse that he had witnessed in the treatment of African slaves in the 18th century. He says, But unlimited power, instigated by revenge, and where the heart, by a long familiarity with the sufferings of slaves, has become callous and insensible to the pleadings of humanity, is terrible. Bosses, has your heart become callous? to the pleadings of your employees. Just imagine for a second what your workplace would look like if you, as the boss, 
set the tone of out of obedience to Christ. You sought to, to honor and to treat your employees well. Just think about how different your workplace would be as the difference that the gospel has made in your life is lived out. Masters need to realize that when they treat their slaves wrongly, they are disobeying Christ, and He is their master in heaven. Colossians 4.1 says the same. It says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Do you see what the Apostle Paul is doing here? Again, he's putting slaves and masters on equal footing. He's saying that in the most important ways, you are the same. That you both have a master in heaven. That you both have a Lord in heaven. So he says, when he says do the same, he's saying that you are also to do the will of God from the heart. Verse 6, and that you are also to do it with a good will. And you are also to do it to as to the Lord. Masters are to relate to their slaves in the knowledge that they too are slaves. Saying you might be a master on earth, but you have a master in heaven. You might be a boss on earth, but you have a master in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. Galatians 3.28, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. As we saw with men and women, the slaves and masters, they are equal under the Lord. Again, you need to understand just how countercultural that was in Paul's day. That was completely unheard of. It was the opposite of what was being taught. Remember, masters and servants were sitting together in this church they were both hearing these words. And I don't think we have any bosses and employees sitting here in church together this morning. But may the relations in your workplace be different because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether you're an employee or whether you are a boss. Think about the Lord Jesus. In John 13, how he took off his outer garment and wrapped a towel around his waist and he, he knelt before the, the dirty, stinky feet of his disciples and washed them. As an example, not just for them, but also for us. In Philippians 2, 7, the Lord Jesus Christ, though he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and humbled himself. But he didn't just humble himself to the point of becoming a servant. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. Death on a cross. Friends, your only hope, your only hope for your failures to obey these commands, whether you have failed as, as an employee or as a boss, your only hope is in the death of Jesus Christ. Your only hope is in the one who became a servant for you. Your only hope is, is to be in the one who, who became obedient to the point of death for you. Your only hope is the gospel. 
and your only hope in seeking to obey these things, again, whether an employee or, or as, a, as a boss, your only hope is the Holy Spirit at work in you, changing your heart and having, helping you to see these things and to implement these things in your life. The Apostle Paul did not abolish slavery in this passage, but he commanded slaves and masters to remember that they are both slaves of Christ. They are both slaves of Christ. William Wilberforce, who I mentioned earlier, when he came to faith in Christ, he was motivated by these passages that, that dealt with slaves and masters. He was motivated to make a difference, and God in His providence placed him in the English Parliament 200 years ago so that he would fight. He spent over 20 years of his life fighting against slavery. And by God's grace, there are no longer slaves in our culture because of His work, because of God's work in Him. What is God going to do in your workplace as He works in your heart tomorrow morning? Let's pray together. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for the example of Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who humbled Himself by becoming the lowest form of servant and humbled himself further still by becoming obedient even to death on a cross. Heavenly Father, we know that he did this out of loving obedience to you and out of love for us. Lord, help us as those who have been purchased by his blood. Help us, Lord, to live lives that are transformed through the power of your Holy Spirit that we might live out the gospel in our workplace, whether it's as employees or as bosses, for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.